All right, we will go back into the minor prophets of the Old Testament and turn to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. We'll look at just a few minor prophets here as we close out the year. And we have been looking at many different Bible characters over the course of the year. And we'll finish up with some minor prophets, which in turn end up being a short overview of these particular books. Though minor as far as their size of their writings, of their books, obviously they had a major message. And we looked at Haggai a couple of weeks, and now we will look at Zephaniah, Lord willing, Haggai, and then a couple of uh, Bible studies about or from the book of Zechariah, and specifically in regards to the Messiah. But the book of Zephaniah, I know one of the minor prophets, sometimes a little bit more difficult to find. And hopefully uh, you can uh, get there without uh, missing too much of my Bible study, flipping through your... Or maybe you just pull out your Bible app and you just scroll to it. Uh, maybe that helps as well. Book of Zephaniah. Who is Zephaniah? Well, this chart, I know it's very small, and so it's a little bit difficult to read. I used it on Sunday. I know we're spending quite a bit of time right now in some of these prophetic books and it's just interesting, again, how much they parallel the time in which we live, even though we're not in a, in a monarchy, and we are several, well, 2,500 years removed or more from these events, we see a lot of parallels. We see a lot of similarities, and we spent some time on Sunday morning, and we looked at Isaiah, and we went through one particular passage in Isaiah 7, and we are looking now at, down here, the ministry of Zephaniah, who overlaps Habakkuk, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So we were looking at Habakkuk recently. Now we're in Zephaniah. Eventually we'll, uh, Lord willing, touch on Haggai and uh, Zechariah before we finish out the year. But this is the time frame in which we are looking at right now. So we are around six... 40 B.C., around 640 B.C., in about the time of Josiah the king. Verse number 1 of the book of Zephaniah, the word of the Lord, which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, or Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So he's ministering during the reign of King Josiah, but he is the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. That is the name. I know it's spelled a little different there in verse 1, son of Hezekiah. So he had a royal uh, lineage, though he is a prophet of God. This probably gave him access to the palace and to have influence in the life of King Josiah. His name means the Lord hides. And with King Josiah reigning 640 to 608 B.C., we can put this book around 635 to 625 B.C. Likely written because of some of the judgments that are mentioned, we can safely assume that Zephaniah is preaching and writing 
even before Josiah's reforms and the revival that Josiah led as king. Though there would be judgments that would still come under the Babylonian Empire and future evil kings who would undo Josiah's reforms, those, those uh, reforms, that revival, we don't have time to look in detail, but 2 Kings 22 and 23, 2 Chronicles 34 and 35, including a celebration of the Passover with such a level of celebration that it had not been celebrated to that degree since the time of the prophet Samuel, going all the way back to before King Saul. Josiah led a celebration of the Passover in, in such great celebration that it compared only to the celebrations of the Passover that went all the way back to Samuel. No other king had celebrated the Passover the way King Josiah did. So we know that Zephaniah is contemporary to the prophet Jeremiah. We see he overlaps a couple of other prophets as well from that chart that we looked at just a moment ago. We once again are considering the historical background. We're seeing this power dynamic of the Assyrian Empire. I, in my mind, I still sometimes get the Assyrian Empire confused with the Syrians. Syria is different than Assyria. And sometimes I get those two mixed up in my mind. But the Assyrian Empire is now beginning in its decline we know that 722 B.C., they conquered Israel. The Babylonian Empire is now rising in power. We talked a little bit about this on Sunday in regards to Isaiah 7. And Josiah sees this as relief because as the Assyrians are focusing more on their defense against Babylon, who is rising in power, that takes some of the threat off of Josiah and allows him some political, economic, and military relief. Judah had two previous evil kings, so Josiah really didn't have any good examples to look up to in his, uh, his life as king. Manasseh had been evil. Ammon had been evil. Manasseh had a long reign. Ammon had a short one. They had left the nation in a very low spiritual state. But Hilkiah, the high priest, found the book of the law, and it was read both privately and also publicly, and it, along with Zephaniah's preaching and ministry, there was a revival that swept the land. Reforms, the breaking down of idols, the tearing down of high places, and incredible revival and spiritual reforms during Josiah's reign. Zephaniah was preaching and writing, receiving revelation from God, some of which is given to us right here in the book of Zephaniah by the inspiration of God and the preservation of God's word. We have three chapters of Zephaniah's preaching and writing ministry that was influential in that great revival and the spiritual reformation under King Josiah. A couple of themes in this book that we need to take note of. One is the mention of the day of the Lord. Verse 14 of Zephaniah 1, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. 
Verse 15, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. What is the day of the Lord? This is debated among Bible scholars and theologians. There's the day of the Lord in the New Testament, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. I think that sometimes these theologians and Bible scholars, they like to split theological hairs. They like to dance on the head of a, of a pen, of a needle, or <laughs> some point of a ballpoint pen, and they like to, I think, sometimes argue over little, I don't know, minutia of theological implications. The day of the Lord doesn't have to be that complicated. It doesn't need to be something that we get into great theological discourse about. We need to understand in general terms that it is the direct and overwhelming intervention by God in the affairs of men. We know that God is sovereign, that God is providential. We know that God has given man uh, and, and a free will, but that is only exercised, again, within the boundaries of what God allows in his permissive will. And we know that God's providential and sovereign will is ultimately meted out. And God has even declared some of that to us in his word for what we know is still to come. The 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation, the rapture, and all those eschatological uh, topics. And we won't go back and rehearse all of those. But the day of the Lord is God's demonstration of his sovereignty over human powers and human existence. There are times where God breaks through in a sense and he does a work that is overwhelming, that is awesome, that is clearly a demonstration of God's sovereign will. Where God says, in case you forgot about me, here I am, so to speak. We do that sometimes as parents. I can't help but make these analogies with being a dad, being a parent. Do we run our homes? Yeah, I know we have our various vacations and busy lives, but to some degree, there is a structure to our home. And we, I know some of us are more organized and more schedule conscious than others. Some, it's just like, Ships passing in the night, or maybe it's Titanic ships passing in the night, hitting icebergs. I don't know, but we know how it is. Sometimes it's Grand Central Station. People are coming and going. We were talking today uh, with all of our work schedules, and it was nice having a third vehicle home when Emily was home with, with Chandler last week, and we were able to have four drivers in our home. And, whoa, what a what a convenience that was, you know, in three vehicles. But, you know, we, what am I saying? Is it five? Yeah, that's right, it's five. What am I thinking? Yeah, five. We have five drivers when, there's, when the older two are home. That's right. And so we're, we're you know, we're in that stage of life, and, and it, it just seems like sometimes it's just going constantly and schedules and work schedules and ministry and, and different events. And we have a basic structure to our life. And then there are times where we just kind of put on, a halt and we say okay everybody's gonna come and we, we're thankful for a thanksgiving holiday like last week where we just put on the brakes on our schedule hopefully we were able to do that and family comes over and i know there's food and prep but there is a time where things just come to a stop 
and you just enjoy each other's company, you enjoy some food and some fellowship, and just a, a great time together. And we're thankful for those times. Well, God's working out his providential and sovereign will. He's allowed us as mere mortals to exercise our free will within a certain degree, within certain boundaries. And then there are times where God steps in, doesn't he? Just like we sometimes as parents, we have to intervene in a particular chaotic moment in the home or discipline has to be and the whole house gets quiet as dad or mom lowers the boom. I have been there. I've done that. And I've been on the receiving end as well as the giving side of that. And it's just stop. And then we have to deal with this. Those aren't pleasant moments. But God as our heavenly father, as the sovereign rule of the universe, there are times he steps in in overwhelming, often in very cataclysmic ways. And there is a coming judgment with Judah and the Babylonian Empire and the captivity and the deportation. But there's also a prophetic judgment that he points to in the 70th week of Daniel. So there's a day of the Lord in near fulfillment. Babylonian Empire, 1-4, chapter 1, verses 4 through 13. But there's also a reference to a future cataclysmic day of the Lord, the 70th week of Daniel, another day of the Lord. And that is referenced in chapter 1 and verse 18 and chapter 3 and verse 8. We just read some of these verses from Zephaniah chapter number 1, so I won't, won't reread those. But this particular day of the Lord, as often they are, there's a cataclysmic judgment. It's a day of trouble, distress, wasteness, darkness, gloominess, clouds. And you can see, as we just read, and there's an addition, a couple of additional verses there, God is going to deal with the sins of his people. So then we see also, though, in this book, we see the themes of salvation and seeking the Lord. Zephaniah 2 and verse 3, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed thereupon in the houses of Ashkelon. Shall they lie down in the evening, for the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. And then in chapter 3, and we won't have time to read all of these verses, verses 14 through 20, but we see in Chapter 3, verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments, he hath cast out thine enemy, the king of Israel. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee, thou shalt not see evil anymore. So in the midst of all the judgment that comes with the day of the Lord and that cataclysmic intervention by God, overwhelming, there is also the promise of salvation. That there is going to be a day when Israel will no longer have an enemy. Don't we long for that day? The church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. We see what Israel is going through right now. We see the peril. We see the enemies. They are surrounded. Even some of their friends are beginning to wobble and waver and struggle with their supports. But one day there will be no more enemies of the people of Israel. Promised right here in Zephaniah chapter number 3. That their enemy will be taken away. They shall not see evil anymore. 
And in doing that, in promising that there is a day when the enemies of Israel will be taken away, what is he also preaching for right here and right now to the children of Israel that applies to us as well? That there is a time right now where we can repent, where we can turn from our sin. There's a warning that's being shot across the bow. There is a warning of the coming judgment. There is a clear reference to the sins of the land. We could go to chapter 1 again in verses 17 and 18, or I'm sorry, 12 and 13. Zephaniah 1, 12 and 13. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees, that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. There's this group of people, there's people in the land who are saying God is not even paying attention. He's just kind of apathetic. He's busy about his own affairs. He won't do good and he won't do evil. He is not really active and involved in the affairs of men. Are there not people like that today? Man's in control of his own destiny. God's up there as a great genie in the sky, old man on his rocking chair. All those unbiblical and disrespectful and sometimes downright blasphemous references to God. And man thinks he's just going to keep on marching. He's going to keep on with his technology. He's going to have his iPhones and his Galaxy phones. He's going to have all his technology. And I mentioned on Sunday about gene editing. And man's going to have designer babies. And we're going to eventually be able to, in the womb, determine. And we're going to have surrogate parents. And we're going to have babies that are going to be the new, latest, greatest. It's already there. It's already coming out in its seed forms. There's already, at the start of the war in Ukraine, surrogate mothers who got left because rich European and Americans had paid Ukrainian women to give birth to children. And when the war started, they couldn't get their babies to the Europeans and to the Americans. Surrogacy is already in the world today. And the idea then that we can edit the genes so that we can get a super baby. It's already there. God doesn't care. He's not going to judge. He's not going to deal with it. He's just busy about his own affairs. That's the attitude in verse 12. Verse 13, therefore their goods shall become a booty. In their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards but not drink the wine thereof. Man can come up with all of his technologies, all of his houses, all of his dreams, all of his visions. But if they're not submitted to the Lord... If they're not done in his honor and for his glory, then what will eventually happen to man's ways? They will be for naught. God will deal with them. How important it is that we recognize God in our lives, that we give him the glory, that we serve him humbly, that we seek first the kingdom of God. And this is some strong words of judgment, but there is the salvation, the seeking of the Lord that is promised. For those, the salvation for those who seek the Lord. We'll just finish up tonight with a quick outline. And it's, it's interesting how this is structured. This, this book is structured. I hope you have an opportunity to read through all of the, the chapters, just three chapters. It wouldn't take very long for, for us to read through. But I wish, wish we had time tonight to read all the verses, but we, we just don't uh, have time tonight. But we see in verses 2 and 3, 
Well, let's, let's start with verse number one. We see the superscription we just read there. But verses two and three, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. So this idea, this verse two, consume all things. Verse three, consume man and beast. Verse 3, again, will consume. This has the idea of sweeping away. It has the meaning of to gather, to take away, to remove, and to destroy. And it's a similar kind of sweeping away that sounds like the flood in Genesis. There's a cataclysmic judgment. But there is a remnant that will be preserved, as there was a remnant preserved that went into the ark with Noah and his family. So there will be a remnant. And why is that remnant so important? Because that's part of God's promise. Obviously, the, for the nation to continue, but also part of God's covenant promise in the Davidic covenant, in the Abrahamic covenant, that God will preserve his people. There's a remnant. Romans chapter 11 speaks to that. This is, again, showing the unity of the Bible and how these books complement and supplement as this is obviously entirely God's holy word. But we see those uh, phrases there. We see the judgment. There's an interesting order here. I wish we had time to go through all this in chapter 1. But there's an interesting order that even is in reverse of the creation. The judgments will come upon the land and upon the animals, upon the beasts, upon men. And it's in reverse order. From creation, So there's even a hearkening back to Genesis. As they're reading this, as the Jews are hearing Zephaniah preach, I can't help but think, are they not brought, is it not brought to their minds that God is the creator? That as he is bringing judgment and he mentions these in reverse order from the creation, does it not bring their minds back to the fact that God is the creator? He made them. So we see this structure in this book. There's also a structure of a wide, the whole earth, being judged, and then narrow to Judah. Chapter 1, verse 4, through chapter 2 and verse 3. Then it begins to widen again a little bit to the surrounding nations. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 15. Included are Philistia, Moab, and Ammon, Ethiopia, Assyria, each of these nations for their rebellion and rejection of God, they also are judged. And he gets back specific again. So he goes wide, then he narrows, then he goes a little bit wider, and then he goes narrow again to Jerusalem in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And then he widens again in chapter 3, in verse number 8. Therefore, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey for my determinations to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And ultimately, what is he speaking to? Battle of Armageddon, the last battle at the end of the millennial kingdom. God is going to deal with the wicked. There will be judgment, there will be justice upon all those who reject God, who reject Jesus Christ. And then, he widens back out again with the Lord's blessing in verses 9 through 20. 
And we see in chapter 3 and verse 9, For then will I turn to the people a pure language. This is not, as some would say, the return to a one language system prior to the Tower of Babel. That's not necessarily what this is saying. What is it saying? What is ultimately Zephaniah saying? This return to a pure language, verse 9, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. What's going to happen when the nations are all judged, when sin is ultimately and finally dealt with? We know it was dealt with at the cross. We know that there was the, 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 uh, the penalty of death, the penalty of sin. We know that was broken at the cross. But we know that this playing out of the final judgment and the dealing with sin on the earth, now that has concluded and there is a pure language, there is one language, but it's speaking not necessarily of one dialect, it's speaking of what? That now all people who know the Lord, all believers, will now do what? They will speak with one consent to the glory of the Lord. There will not be all this denominationalism and all this camping, <laughs> all these various camps. <laughs> there will be true, one true group of believers. We know Israel is still given specific promises regarding the land and their covenants, but included, obviously, within Israel and the whole church, the universal church, there is now oh, one language, a pure language, it's of one consent, and that is to the glory of the Lord. There will be a unity in worship. He's speaking to the final judgment. Armageddon, the last battle of the millennial kingdom, and the entrance into eternal glory, when every people, tongue, tribe, and nation will do what? Cry out, worthy is the Lamb, and sing praises to our God, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Wonderful book. Wish we had time to read it in its entirety, but he then brings this wide blessing to the nations, and then he concludes in verses 11 through 20, he narrows it back down to specific blessings upon Judah in chapter 3, verses 11 through 20. That is a quick overview. It gives us a little bit of an understanding of Zephaniah, who he is and his ministry, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at Haggai, and then conclude, Lord willing, the year with a couple of studies in the book of Zechariah. Thank you for being here tonight. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of Zephaniah. Lord, once again, a prophecy that speaks of judgment, but also of salvation, that points ahead to your final victory over sin, over evil. We know that the victory was won at the cross, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but we know that there is a temporary period of time where there will still be the effects of sin in the world with the prince of the power of the air and the God of this world that you've allowed for a period of time, even for your own purposes, and ultimately, Lord, to reveal your own greatness, your own judgment, your own justice, and your holiness. And Lord, as we think of these judgments, Lord, may it renew our desire to reach others with the gospel. And may, Lord, as we see these coming judgments, may it renew our desire to be holy, to be a pure people, ready for your coming, whether it be at the rapture or when we enter into your presence uh, through death. Uh, Lord, we look forward to that resurrection day when we will one day be with you, 
No more sin. And we thank you for these promises and these prophecies in your word that point to that day. And we give you the glory for it. Pray you guide and direct and remain in our lives and the remainder of this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for being here. Hope that you have a great rest of the week. We'll see the men on Saturday in the security training as well. And then on Sunday, look forward to being back together, should the Lord tarry.